John chapter 2. Once upon a time, there was a man who was just growing weary of the constant pressure of life. He was growing weary with the, 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 uh, the war against his soul and the temptations that Satan was throwing at him, and he was, he, was, he was just tired of all the covetousness and the materialism and trying to keep up with the Joneses all the time, so he decided just to get away from it all. And so he joined a mute monastery. It was a very demanding commitment. Not only was this just a monastery, you had to be quiet all the time. You weren't allowed to speak. It was, it, you, the monks could only say two words every five years. So the first 15 years, monks were on trial during this time, and if they were successful in meeting the requirements of the monastery during that 15-year trial period, then they would finally be able to take their vows at the end of that 15 years. So the man thought, hey, perfect, this is what I need. I can get away from it all. There won't be any more temptations, and I won't have any clients ringing me all the time and bothering me. There won't be any phones. No email, no computers, none of that sort of stuff. No credit cards to pay off, and no temptations. This is just what I need, he said. So for the first five years, he didn't say any words at all. And at the end of that time, he was called into his superior's office, and he was allowed to say two words. And he said, bad food. His superior said, thank you very much. I will make a note of your observation." So the man, the man went back to his duties for the next five years and didn't say any words during those five years. And then, again, his superior called him into his office and uh, asked him if he had anything he would like to say in two words. And the man replied, hard bed. So for another five years, he went about his business not saying any words. And again, at, at the end of that 15 years now, he's called back into his superior's office And he was asked if he was ready to take his final vows. And the man stood up and said, I quit. His superior replied, well, I'm not really surprised. After all, all you've done since you got here was complain. You say, is there a moral to the story? There's always a moral to the story. One of the things I just want to point out to you is that joining a monastery... To get away from temptation, it doesn't actually protect us. It's not foolproof. And you might ask, well, why is that? I mean, because plenty of people have tried to do that, and, and, you know, they become monks of various sorts around the world and try to get away from the world, so to speak. And, And the reason it doesn't work is because every one of us has desire inside us that goes wherever we go. We have this desire for the world that is actually in our hearts. It's inside us. And, and of course, temptations only give opportunity for our heart to reveal itself. And so if you're going to conquer our enemies in this war against the soul, we need to do so from the inside out. Here in 1 John chapter 2, it It addresses the issue of worldliness. I'll explain what that is in a moment, but let's look at uh, 1 John 2 and read what Scripture says here first. Starting in verse 15. 1 John 2, verse 15. The Bible says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this passage, we are given several reasons why we are not to love the world. And I'm glad God has done this for us because, frankly, this really goes against the natural order of things in our world. Everything in our world is telling us, love me, love me, love me. And so it just it really goes against the grain. It just goes against the natural thing. In fact, if you those of you who have unsaved family members and uh, workmates and neighbors, you know, they, they, they would think you're really odd if you choose not to love the world. If you don't love the world, they, they think that's really weird because the, the natural thing is for us to love the world. And so God has given us several reasons, in fact, uh, four reasons, if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to do so, four reasons why Christians should not love the world. Number one, the first reason, it's kind of obvious right there in verse 15, is because God commands you not to love the world. It's actually a command. It's in the imperative in the Greek language. And God says, do not love the world. And then he adds that little phrase, or the things in the world. Well, we really need to define some terms here. Because God says, do not love the world. And and if you're like me... You might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that sounds a bit strange. Uh, I thought I was supposed to love that. Well, let's talk about this. What is the world? What is the world? All right. Some people think uh, of the world in different, different ways. For example, a lot of people think of the world as planet Earth. Is God telling you don't love planet Earth? Is that what he's saying to do? There's a picture of planet Earth. So is God saying don't love the physical world? No, I don't think so. The Bible says that God made the world, our our planet, that is, and He made all the things therein, according to Acts 17. God says in Psalm Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, that, that this world and the heavens are there declaring the glory of God. God loves what He has made. In fact, remember in the very beginning, He declared it to be very good. So that's not what it's talking about here. Well, then you get some people who say, well, wait a minute, is Scripture telling me don't love people? Because a lot of times we think of the world as people. There's people represented by various flags around the world. So is God saying that I am not to love human, the human world, mankind? No, because in John 3.16, God loved the world, which is why He gave His only Son, so that we wouldn't perish, but instead we could have eternal life. So God loves the world. We're supposed to love what God loves. So that's certainly not what it's talking about here. So you say, well, what is this world that I am not to love? And, and this, the things of this world, well, it's, here's the simple definition. The world is the spiritual system that's opposed to Christ and God. It's a spiritual system. It's not a physical thing. 
And by the way, if you're wondering, well, how does this manifest itself? Well, often, often it manifests itself in the various beliefs and the philosophies. Uh, the Greek word here is cosmos. It, it shows itself a lot of times in the isms. So you take a word and you add an ism on ISM on the end of it. A lot of times it manifests itself in those isms. For example, pragmatism. The end justifies the means. Hey, you just, you do whatever you want. Doesn't matter if it's unbiblical, illegal, or immoral. You, if, if, if the end result is a good thing, you can do it. That's pragmatism. That's, that is of the world. Postmodernism is another one where, hey, there's no absolutes. Everything is relative. I can do whatever is right in my own eyes. Postmodernism. Those are just a couple examples in our world that, of worldliness. So, let me be, just be clear here. The world is not a, um, it's not something that a believer is to love. It's not something Christians should love. It's, and the reason for that is because it's not our natural habitat. According to Philippians 3, the believer's citizenship is in heaven. You're just a pilgrim an alien in traveling through this temporary world. Let me give you an illustration. Think, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, think of yourself as kind of like a scuba diver. Any of you gone scuba diving at all? Or, or even snorkeling? Uh, on, the, on the slide there, you got a picture of a dog in scuba gear. And even for a dog, it'd be... Dog, dog's natural environment is not down in the water, in the sea, in the ocean. Water is not man's natural habitat either. And the reason is God hasn't equipped us with gills. Right? You can't live under the water without carrying an oxygen tank. You need, you need something outside of you to exist in that environment. And so when a scuba diver goes into the water, he has to take this equipment with him so he can breathe, so he can live. And that's the way it is for a Christian. So if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you cannot exist in this world without the Holy Spirit enabling you to do so and giving you the spiritual resources that you need to exist here. Because it's not our natural environment. You, Your citizenship is somewhere else. So, the first reason why you should not love the world is because God commands you not to love the world. And as Jesus said, if you love Him, what do you do? You keep His commandments. Number two, second reason not to love the world is because it actually attracts you to live on sinful substitutes. There's three sinful substitutes that are mentioned here. and These are three evil desires. Some of your Bibles might say lust. Lust is just a very strong desire. And these are, these are sinful substitutes. For, for what we should love, of course, is God. We should love God with all of our hearts and soul or mind and strength. But sometimes there's things, in this case, the world is striving to take that love that God deserves and, and, and it, it wants it. It wants that love. So let's talk about uh, worldliness for a moment, because I don't think I've actually defined it yet for you. So what is worldliness? Well, here's a good definition I like. Uh, worldliness is anything in a Christian's life 
that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will. And so if that is being accomplished in your life, of course God's saying, that must be avoided. Even good things, by the way, can take your love that should be going to God, and and it's drawing that love away from Him. So it's anything in a Christian's life that causes you to lose your enjoyment of the Father's love, or causes you to not be interested in doing the Father's will. Of course, by Father here, I'm, I'm referring to God the Father. You say, well, well, how do I know if that's actually going on in my life? How do I know if I am worldly and I have a love for the world? Well, let me give you two tests. Number one, how are you responding to the Father's love for you? How are you responding? What's your, one of the ways you can tell that is, what's your personal devotion life like? What is your worship like? And, and I, and by worship, I hope you mean I, I'm not just referring to music. A lot of people think music is worship. Well, that's part of it. Alright, but worship is something that should go on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Something that can take place just between you and God. So how's your personal devotion life? Uh, another test could be this: uh, How are you doing? How are you uh, doing on obeying the Father's will for your life? This has to do with your daily conduct. Obviously, if you love Jesus Christ, you're going to obey His commands. You're, you're going to desire God's will for your life more than anything else. So even if you lose your job in the process, right? God's will comes first in your life. It doesn't matter if when bad things happen. Because you care more for God's will than your own will. So those are just a couple tests of worldliness. So Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, John points out that the world system here is using three devices to trap Christians. The world is not your friend. It's not for you. It's against you. And it's going to do everything it can to trap you, to deceive you, to draw you to itself and away from God. And there's three things mentioned here, and they all go with the word desire. There's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life. By the way, this happened in the beginning It's happened since the Garden of Eden and is going on now in your life and my life. For example, in Genesis 3, uh, these devices were used to trap Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. For example, the Bible says the woman saw the tree was good for food. That's the desires of your flesh. Then Genesis 3 says it was pleasant to the eyes. That was the the lust or the desires of your eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. So Satan uses those three tools to trap people. And of course, Genesis 3 said Eve took the fruit, and then she gave it to her husband Adam, and the rest is history. 
Let's talk a little bit about these three evil devices that Satan likes to use, that the world uses. Number one, the desires of the flesh include anything that appeals to your fallen, sinful nature. So you understand, flesh here, the, the desires of the flesh is not your skin and bones. That It's not your skin, you know, the stuff that's covering your bones and, and your muscles. It actually refers to your unregenerate nature, your, uh, your, your sin nature. It's, it's what makes you blind to spiritual truth. The flesh is that nature we receive when you're born. The spiritual nature you're born with, it, it's the fallen nature. So that is that is the desires of the flesh. And, and so God's given us certain desires. He's given us a lot of desires. And, and a lot of things are good. In fact, in the beginning, everything was good that God had made. But what, what our enemies do is take these good things that God makes and perverts them. For example, hunger is a God-given desire. But your flesh will take hunger and pervert it, and then it becomes the sin of gluttony. Thirst is also a good thing. God designed you to thirst. When you're thirsty, so you drink, and so you can maintain this body God has given to you. But some people take thirst, and they go too far, and they end up getting drunk and so forth. Sins can result as as a result of that. Weariness. God's designed us to grow weary. But again, some people can take that too far and we can end up with the sin of laziness. Sex is a good thing that God has designed. Unfortunately, our world takes that and, and just destroys it for the most part. And so we have all sorts of evil things as a result of, of that, things like pornography and immorality. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with these desires that God has implanted into you. Things like eating and sleeping and drinking and so forth. But when the flesh ends up controlling those things, then they become sinful. They become sinful lust. So, can you see how the world operates here? The world operates by taking good things that God makes. It, and then it appeals to your just your normal appetites. Your And, and then it tempts us to satisfy those things in ways that God has forbidden. For example, you know, young people are constantly tempted to be immoral, to have sex outside of outside of marriage. Well, even those of us who are married are tempted to have sex outside of our marriage. God calls that adultery. God calls it immorality for a young person to have sex before they're married. And so God, you know, what happens is the world and Satan and your flesh takes those good things that God has made and says, have them now. It's not the time for it. That's the desire of the flesh. The second one is second device the world uses to trap Christians is the desires of the eyes. These are pleasures that gratify our sight and our in our mind. To me, a good example we have in Scripture is in Joshua chapter seven. There's a man by the name of Achan. He was a soldier in the army of Israel, and and when God God said when you go into Jericho, you're going to destroy Jericho, but God says. That is my first fruits. You cannot have anything in Jericho. Don't touch. Don't take. It's mine. 
God always gets the first and the best. He deserves it. But Achan, the Bible says, he had a problem with the lust of the eyes. You'll see a picture of him up here on the screen. And the Bible says in Joshua chapter 7, when Achan saw among the spoils a a Babylon garment, he saw 200 shekels of silver, the Bible says he coveted which is sin. He coveted them. He wanted them, this strong desire. He wanted them to be his, and he took them. So he succumbed to the lust of the eyes and led him into sin and also led to the defeat of the armies of Israel at the next battle. So Achan's a good example here for us to understand what's going on with this lust of our eyes. See, your eyes are kind of a gateway to your mind. A lot of times what you see is what you're going you're gonna to think. So the desires of the eyes, by the way, can include intellectual pursuits that are actually contrary to God's Word. Sometimes Christians get themselves, you know, studying various things they shouldn't be studying. Sometimes there's pressure to make uh, Christians think the world the way the world thinks. By the way, it doesn't mean you should ignore education. It doesn't mean that, that all secular learning is sinful. That's not the point. But you do need to be aware that if you go to places, say, like a WinTech or a university or so forth, or even schooling online, they're going to try to conform you to their way of thinking. Third device mentioned here in 1 John 2 is the pride of life. Pride of life. That, that word there, pride, was used to describe someone who was a braggart, somebody who's going around bragging all the time. He's trying to impress people with his importance. You know, they're the ones who like to hold up the finger saying, hey, I'm number one. Talk about, you know, themselves and their accomplishments. These are the people who always got to outdo you. You know, you ever you ever gone and talk to someone? It, it's obnoxious, I know. But you've you done that where you go and talk to somebody and you're talking about various things. You know, they might ask you, what what do you do? What did you do? And then they gotta, they gotta, they gotta throw in something better than what you just said. And then you tell, tell them something else, and they're like, "But I did this." You know, they're constantly gotta push you down and raise themselves up. That's the pride of life. So the boastful pride of life motivates a lot what what people do. So you'll you'll see this manifesting itself. People, you know, they gotta. Think they gotta climb the corporate ladder. They gotta have a bigger and better house. They gotta have better cars than you. They gotta have the boat, the batch. They gotta have the best cars, the uh, good appliances. They gotta have the best wardrobe. They're constantly going and shopping and racking up credit card debt and traveling and so forth. And why are they doing all that? A lot of people do it just to impress people. And if they're doing it just to impress people, that's what the Bible calls the pride of life. They may want people to notice how affluent they are. They want people to notice how successful they are. They want people to be amazed at what they what they own and what they do. They want people to be amazed at the letters DR in front of their name. All right, those are those are just some examples of the pride of life. And so what happens is the world loves, it'll take over in one of these areas 
And then what's going to happen when that, when that does happen, then the father's love, or I should say the enjoyment of the father's love decreases. And then his, and and your desire to do the father's will will also decrease. So the Bible will become boring. You will lose your desire to read the Bible and you will stop reading the Bible. And prayer becomes a very difficult chore. It's no longer enjoyable to pray to God. It, it's just, it, it's, you, you don't even want to do it. That's what happens when your love for God is replaced by the love of the world. Let me give you an example of the pride of life. Classic example of this in the Bible is Lot. You can read about Lot in Genesis chapters 13 through 19. Lot uh, went with Abram uh, there in the Middle East, and he he eventually makes his way to the land of Canaan. The Bible says uh, there there was this conflict between Abram and and Lot and his, his servants and the herds, so eventually they needed to split. And so Lot, he chooses the well-watered plains of the Jordan. Great place for his herds. The Bible says that Lot looked toward Sodom. And it's interesting, if you see the progression in Genesis, not only did he look, the Bible says he eventually, he, he sets up his tent facing Sodom. And then he moves into the city of Sodom. And then he ends up becoming uh, some sort of a leader, influential leader in Sodom, because the Bible says he's actually sitting in the gate doing business. He was a believer. Did you know that? Lot was a Christian. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, God calls him righteous Lot. I know, that might come as a shock to some of you. God calls him a Christian, and it's uh, he obviously didn't live like one, because the world was in his heart. He was loving the world. He was loving the pride of life. And so when God destroyed Sodom, everything that Lot lived for went up in smoke, including his wife, because she loved the world as well. And she turned around, and God instantly turned her into a pillar of salt. He lost his children. His these guys who should have been, you know, who, who should have loved God, should have been his sons-in-law, they weren't, interesting, they weren't interested in coming with him either. And he had to drag his daughters along, and they weren't very godly either. So Lot, everything he lived for goes up in smoke, and the Bible says Lot was saved, but he lost his eternal reward in the process because of his love for the world. So it's no wonder we, we look at this here. John is warning us, do not love the world let me give you a third reason from our passage here of why you should not love the world. It's because of who believers are. If you're a believer, as we said, your citizenship is in heaven. You're just a pilgrim in this world. And the Bible calls you a child of God. God calls you one of His children. So Christians are children of God. Believers belong to God. We are no longer of our father, the devil. All right. So if you look at some of these titles uh, given to believers here in 1 John chapter 2, for example, uh, look at verse 12. 
Verse 12 says, I am writing to you little children. Verse 13, I am writing to you fathers. Uh, The end of verse 13 says, I write to you children. Verse 14, I write to you fathers. Then he goes on, I write to you young men. These are all referring to, I, I believe they're referring to various stages of the spiritual life. These are all Christians. These are people who are children of God. That's what the whole book is about. John's writing to believers to encourage them, to exhort them. So these are literally what it means. These are born-again ones. The Bible says all Christians have been born into God's family, and that happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is that our sins are forgiven. I love that, that line in verse 12. Look at verse 12. These are clearly born-again ones. Because look at verse 12. He says, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. These are people who are in the family of God. So, to be friendly with the world is actually treason. If you cuddle up with the world, you are you are treasonous. That's what James 4.4 4 says. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. There, whoever wants to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you want to be God's enemy? I hope not. If you don't, you got to stop cuddling up with the world. Don't love the world. Verse 15 is very powerful, isn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So anyone who loves the world is demonstrating that the love of God is not in him. Whoa. Just meditate on that this week. The love of God is not in you? What does that mean? Well, this phrase, I, I think it actually carries a double meaning. It, uh, I think it refers to both the love that God has for His people and also the love that His people have for Him. I mean, after all, you think about it in 1 John chapter 4, it says, the only reason we love God is because He first loves us. So it's God's love that causes people to love Him. So genuine Christians love God. Well, we have a bad example in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, please don't turn here, but there's a man by the name of Demas who was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, he actually forsook Paul and his missionary journeys. And the Bible tells us why. It says, because he loved this present world. So even though Demas had been a co-worker with Paul, he ends up abandoning his friends, he abandons the ministry, he goes to Thessalonica. And he did that because he loved this present world more than he loved God. You have to understand, Thessalonica was kind of the equivalent of, of someone from some you know backcountry little town in New Zealand going up to Auckland. Right? You know, some little backcountry town in somewhere in New Zealand, doesn't have all the the so-called modern pleasures of this world, and they kind of get sick of that, you know, whatever, you know, they they don't have it, so, hey, I want the world, so they go up to Auckland so they can have the pleasures of this world. That's what Demas did.
You know what Demas did in the process of forsaking Paul? Demas proved that he was never a lover of God. He proved he was never a lover of God. As verse 15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Demas probably went to hell because he chose the world instead of God. Let me give you a fourth reason why you should not love the world because verse 17 says the world is passing away. Verse 17 says the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So literally the idea here is that this this system that we live in, the spiritual system we live in, is self-destructing. It's self-destructing. It, 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 it's going to come to a final end one day. The world is not permanent. And the only sure thing about this world system is that, that it isn't forever. In fact, the Bible says that uh, it's going to be destroyed by Jesus Christ. This, this cursed earth and the heavens and everything is going to be destroyed and God is going to create all things new. So it will come to an end at the end of the millennium. But as we see here, there is something that does last forever. The world doesn't, but something does. And that's where you need to invest your life. That's where your love should be. Notice end of verse 17 says, Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John is contrasting two ways of life here for us. He's showing us a life that is a wasted life. A love for this world is a wasted life because it's going to come to an end. But if you invest for eternity, that is a life that is going to count. You might ask, well, how does one discover the will of God? All right, I'd like to know the will of God because God says that is what abides forever. So how do I know the will of God? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, God is not... Well, he is good. He's always good. He's not mean. He's not trying to hide his will from you. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek with you. And so you, you discover the will of God, first of all, by, of course, you need to be a Christian. You need to be a Christian. First Corinthians 2 says that, that his, the, the Bible is spiritually discerned. You're not going to understand the Bible unless you, God opens up your heart in, in, to understand it. But it, but it also, the process begins with surrender. It begins with surrender. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, You are to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Verse 2 commands you not to be conformed to this world. He wants you to prove. And the idea of prove there in verse 2, you're going to know by experience. You're going to know by experience what is good and acceptable, what is the perfect will of God. So a Christian who loves the world, guess what? They're, they're not actually going to know what the will of God is. Not in that way. So the Father, he's, he's, he's only going to share His will for those who intend to obey Him. So God's will is not like some spiritual cafeteria. You, know, you ever walk through a cafeteria, you grab your tray, you, and you say, well, I'm going to take that. Well, I don't want that. Well, ooh, that looks good. I'll take that. And then you go down a little farther down the line. Ooh, that Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, they don't like that, right? God's will is not a spiritual cafeteria where you get to take and choose, leave behind what you don't want, take what you like. doesn't work that way. 
will of God has to be accepted in its entirety. It's all or nothing. So that's going to involve a personal surrender to God of your entire life. But number two, how do you discover the will of God? Well, God's going to reveal His will to us through His Word. Psalm 119 says that your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So a worldly believer, guess what? They have absolutely no appetite for the Bible. They're like Lot. And so when he reads it, he's going to get, if he ever does read it, he's going to get very little out of it and probably doesn't intend to obey it when God shows him something. But on the other hand, a spiritual believer who is hopefully spending every day in God's Word, reading it, meditating it, memorizing, studying God's Word, is going to find God's will in the Scriptures. And that person is not just going to be a hearer of the Word, but as James 1 says, you're going to be a doer of the Word. No matter what God shows you, you no matter if it's uncomfortable, you're going to obey what God tells you to do. Well, then you might ask, well, what is the solution for worldliness? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm certainly tempted by this, if not totally involved in it. So you need to remember, Jesus said, you're to be in the world, just don't be of the world. Somebody told me a long time ago, it's like a ship. A ship sitting in the water is not in danger unless the water gets inside the ship. A ship can float on the water and is safe. It's like, like the ship being a Christian, the world being, or the, the water being the world, right? What is going to sink the ship is when the world gets in the Christian, then the ship will sink. So what's the solution for worldliness? Well, a lot of times in Scripture we see the principle of replacement. The principle of replacement is, is just that you, according to Ephesians 4, you put off. And whenever you put off something, you've got to put on something in its place. And it has to be of like kind. So let's think about this. All right? We've been talking about lust or these strong desires. So what do we do? What's the solution? Here, take notes, okay? Number one, you must kill sinful desires. You must kill sinful desires. And, and how you do that is you starve it to death. You just starve it to death. You stop feeding it. Stop feeding it. And it's, it's not going to survive. One of the ways Jesus said to do this, and he didn't mean literally, but in Matthew 5, Jesus said, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And the reason we know Jesus didn't mean literally rip out your eyeballs is because you will still sin even with no eyeballs. You can still think immoral, lustful thoughts in your mind even if you don't have eyeballs. So Jesus isn't recommending you literally take out your eyes, but he does say get radical. Get radical in this fight against sin, in this war against your soul. Do whatever it takes to Starve those evil desires. And in its place, you must develop godly desires. Number two, you must develop godly desires. Uh, one of my books at home, the subtitle of the book, I found incredibly helpful. And it's just this saying that you defeat sin with superior pleasure. You defeat sin with superior pleasure. Because we all know that sin is pleasurable. You're a fool if you don't think so. 
because sin is pleasurable. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable, but in Hebrews 11, it just says it's only pleasurable for a season. It's temporary. It doesn't last, which is why the people around us in this world, when they sin, they got to continually go and get more. They got to get the next high, the next buzz, the next whatever it is. It doesn't last. A good example of, of this is in Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible says there that Moses forsook the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, he put off sin. He rejected all the evil that, that represented in Egypt. And in its place, he, it, it says there in Hebrews 11, he looked to the reward. He turned away from the temporary to the eternal. He put off Egypt and he looked to Christ. <laughs> you read Hebrews 11. Somehow he looked to Christ. My friend, that is the solution for your sin. You must defeat sin with superior pleasure. Whatever your sin is, whatever you're tempted with, the desire of your flesh, the desires of your eyes, or the pride of life, you must look to something that is greater. It's not enough to just put it off. Because if you're left with a vacuum, you could actually end up worse than you started. And my friend, you must find something of greater value. For Moses, it was Jesus Christ. It was, it was an eternal reward. And he knew if I take Egypt, I lose Christ. So, what have we seen here? A Christian doesn't love the world. Christians don't love the world. Unbelievers love the world, but not Christians. And there's several reasons why you should not love the world. Number one, because God commands you not to love the world, because this world is actually a satanic system that is opposed to Christ. So my friend, if, if you claim to be Christ, a Christian, you must be opposed to what Christ is opposed to. Number two, you should not love the world because the Christian is a child of God. You are no longer of your father, the devil. You have a new father, and you must love him and obey him and do his will. And then number three, or sorry, actually, God commands it. We're not to give in to the sinful substitutes that will never satisfy. And as a child of God, we, we, we want to do what our Father wants us to do and love Him with all of our hearts. So my friend, here's my encouragement to you. If you want to love this world, you're going to waste your life. So don't waste your life. Because the world is passing away. And on the other hand, if you do the will of God, that abides forever. So don't waste your life. Instead, invest your life in something that's going to last for all of eternity. Do you see the contrast here? The choice is yours. You can waste your life, or you can invest your life in something that lasts forever. May God give you His grace to do what's right.